Please be seated. Risen Christ, speak to us again and bring us further into your new life. Amen. The gospel lesson here in John contains a sentence which is for me one of the saddest in the New Testament. It's in verse 24 when we've just heard of some stunning things happening in an upper room to the disciples and then you get this and I'm shortening it a bit for preacher's license. Now Thomas was not there. You see what happens when you don't go to the evening service. (laughs) Folk ring you up. You want to come to church? Want to join the healing team? Oh, I, I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm washing my hair. I'm, uh, I'm doing the ironing. Uh, I'm reading the telephone directory. You want to go to a show? I'll be there in 10 minutes. See what happens when you're not there. Everything that's happened in this passage so far, Thomas has missed. He's missed out meeting the risen Jesus, coming behind those closed doors and presenting himself in John for the first time since the resurrection day. He's missed out on hearing Jesus say to him, as he says to the other disciples who have fallen asleep in the garden, who have deserted him as he was crucified, who didn't believe the women when they first came to tell him he was raised. He's never heard him say, peace be with you. He's missed out on hearing what are effectively words of forgiveness and reinstatement. So he's missed out on hearing a new commission. In spite of failing me, says Jesus, in effect, I'm giving you a new start. We begin again. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. But Thomas wasn't there. He wasn't there when Jesus then breathed upon the gathered disciples. And like God breathing life into the clay at the beginning of the creation stories in Genesis, making something a new human life. He misses receiving the Holy Spirit because he's not there. So he's missed out on meeting Jesus, receiving peace, Receiving forgiveness, being co-opted and enlisted again and receiving the Holy Spirit. He's not there. That's a pretty important absence, don't you think? Why was Thomas not there? He's in all the other stories. He seems to be about the place. Well, some people say it's because he was fearful. They're there for fear of the Jewish authorities behind locked doors. He's especially fearful. He's not going. I'm not bought on that. In John chapter 11, earlier in this gospel, Jesus states almost for the first time, I am going to Judea and then to Jerusalem, where I'm going into a place where I will be arrested I will be killed. And so the disciples do what any friends do. Lord, don't do it. Don't go there. It's dangerous. You don't understand. 
this is the Father's will. I, I must go. And they start to say, and this again is the Atkins transcript version of John 11, they begin to say in effect, well, okay, if you're going, let us know how you get on. We'll stay here and we'll pray for you. And it's Thomas who turns around and says, I know, let's go with him so that we can die with him. And you just get this mental picture of 10 or 11 of them turning round to Thomas and saying, <laughs> good idea, Thomas. Why didn't we think of that? Somebody muzzle him, will you? So it's probably not fear that he's not there. It doesn't seem in character at all. Or perhaps Thomas had simply had enough He's not seen the risen Jesus. He's still in the situation of disbelieving the women who come back on the day of resurrection. And he's like the people in Luke's gospel in the road to Emmaus. They are leaving Jerusalem. They are dispersing as a group without coming through to a knowledge of the risen Jesus. Thomas is not there because mentally or spiritually or physically he's on his way somewhere else. That's unlikely too. In John chapter 14, which we used as a, as a passage to preach from just a few weeks ago, Jesus is going to give that picture of his father's house. In my father's house are many rooms. And he declares that he's the way and the truth and the life. Who is it who then turns around and says, Lord, show us the father? It's Thomas. And, and again, Thomas almost plays the court jester for the 12 disciples. In this instance, in John chapter 14, all the other disciples are there listening to Jesus give this marvelous teaching about his father's house and about being the way, the truth, and the life. I bet you Thomas was not the only one who's saying, I'm not quite getting this at the moment. I'll have to think about this later on. And it's Thomas who turns around and says, uh, I don't get, show us, show us the way, show us the Father. And they'll all turn around and say, oh, Thomas, you are thick. And then sotto voce under their breasts, they're thinking, I'm glad he asked that question. When I was uh, at theological college training to be a, a Methodist minister, training that you now know was singularly unsuccessful, uh, it was 1783, I think, we had a, we had a, a, a student called Bruce, who was a Baptist student for the Methodist ministry in my theology lectures. Uh, and we had uh, Dr. Russell, who was our systematics tutor. And Dr. Russell was the most, he's, he's clearly gone to glory, otherwise he'd be 120. So Stanley, if you're listening, I loved it. But you were the most impenetrable lecturer I ever had in my life. So much so that I used to have a little tape recording and I used to tape the lectures and then when I got back to my study in my room I used to write them out longhand and then read them three times and then just begin to think, I think I know what he's talking about. But Bruce, the Baptist, had no such foibles. He, sorry about this Keener, he was, uh, well, I'm going to say a brummy but that's insulting you even more. He was from... It was from black. the black country like you. So he'd say, Dr. Russell, I don't get it. 
And Stanley Russell would take his glasses off and he'd suck them for a minute. And he'd say, well, well, let me put it like this. And as he then explained it again in different words, because somebody said something to him, we're all there busy scribbling. And very often when Bruce had asked the question, I thought, oh, I'm just beginning to get this a bit better. As Bruce was to our theology class, Thomas is to the disciples. And it's because of the honesty of Thomas, I don't get this, show us the way to the Father that you get some of the most stupendous statements of Jesus. Uh, Now, where are we going? Was he withdrawing from the group? No, I don't think so. So I've brought you all the way through, whatever time it is now, to the point, having asked the question, why was Thomas not there, to tell you with enormous international authority, no one has a clue why he's not there. But he wasn't. And Jesus notices that he wasn't. He doesn't say to the disciples, oh well, Thomas is not here again tonight. Have we got a quorum? Yeah, there's there's nine of you, that will do. Each one is important to Jesus. Uh, Just as an aside, pastorally, do we realize who's missing? And does it matter to us? And how often and how regularly and how recently is it that you've turned to somebody in your family who from time to time has gone to the Lord's house and now is doing that less so and said, come with me. You never know what you're missing. Thomas, we have seen the Lord after all these things has happened. Now, let's just pause a minute because those people who were my students for many years... Uh, I often used to say to them, when somebody speaks, when you've got something in speech marks in Scripture, ask yourself how that was said. Now, you don't know how it was said, but by saying it in a number of different ways, you can come up with all sorts of suggestions about what was being said, what was being meant. How do the disciples say to Thomas when he eventually does turn up, We have seen the Lord. I've been to Disney World, bet you haven't. (laughs) The Lord, the risen Lord, turned up to us who deserve it, Thomas. You weren't there. You never seem to be there when real blessing happens, do you, brother? Something you've done, some deep secret in your life. Let me confess a human weakness. I've got many. Few things drive me as crazy as Christians who imply that receiving blessings equals somehow spiritual superiority or privilege. The person that tells you that you know, they're especially gifted because their prayer works and yours doesn't. What are they saying? What a blessed time we had last night, Thomas. Pity you weren't able to make it. This episode, how they say this, shows us the value and the limits of witness and testimony. Did the disciples fail? Well, in one sense they did, 
because Thomas does not believe. They're saying to him, we saw the Lord, this happened, this happened, this happened, and Thomas says, fine. But unless I, unless it happens to me, I won't believe it. So they failed. Did they succeed? Well, in one sense they did. Why? Because the next week, when they're still there behind closed doors, don't ask me why, but they're still there behind closed doors, Thomas is there. However they said, we have seen the Lord, it didn't put him off completely. So I think they probably said it affirmatively. Thomas, why weren't you there? No, don't bother asking us. It was fantastic. The Lord came to us. He was suddenly there in front of us. And do you know what he said after all the things we've done? Peace be with you. Can you imagine? There wasn't a tear dry eye in the place. I wish you'd have been there. How are we with the people and with people we know and love when we're speaking about the Lord and how he matters? Do they hear a sword of Damocles above their head? Or do they find a way where next time they might be there too? It's the sensitivity and the friendship of these disciples that clearly brings Thomas to a point where he is there when Jesus comes this second time. But I want to retrace my steps a little bit. Unless I see, unless I touch, I will not believe, says doubting Thomas. What kind of spiritual person is Thomas? Well, he's a doubter, you say. What a stupid question. If we know the title of any disciple in the New Testament, we know the title of Thomas. He's a doubter. Well, that may be so, but very often, you know, we get the wrong idea about doubt. I'll just pause because theologically this is the most important two lines of the sermon, just to alert you. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is faithlessness. So there's positive doubt and there's negative doubt. And actually we human adults are very good at using doubt both positively and negatively. Doubt can result in either a deep longing for truth and for faith, or it can be a negative knee-jerk barrier response to any mention of faith, making the reception of any faith totally impossible. So there are very different kinds of doubt. When it's a genuine longing for truth, God is able and willing to use it for good. Now, which kind of doubter does Thomas betray himself to be in this episode in the gospel? I think he's very clearly a positive doubter, a person who's just longing to believe but can't get there. The clue is the word unless. 
You see, what Thomas is demanding, unless I see, unless I touch, I will not believe, he's absolutely right. Thomas requests a personal experience of the risen Jesus. He's probably beating himself up that he didn't turn, to turn up at that time. But he's got a perfect right to expect that. That's after all what exactly what's happened to all his friends and colleagues. If it's going to be real, he says, it's got to be real for me. Thomas sets limits. And he's saying, if this, if that, if then I will believe. That's a very positive way of doubting. His unless is not entirely incredible. What about your unlesses? How do you use doubt? I remember reading uh, the very first book of Adrian Plass all those donkeys years ago. They Sacred Diary of Adrian Plass, aged 37 and three quarters or something. Most of you now look at me absolutely balmy. But there's this lovely bit in it where Adrian Plass is sat at home watching his TV and he knows that some of the church are going out witnessing in the streets and singing songs. And he sits there in his warm house and he knows that he should go out on that meeting and he knows how warm and comfortable the house is. So he says this kind of prayer, Lord... I don't know whether or not you want me to go out witnessing this evening. So I'm saying this prayer. If a midget in a Japanese admiral's uniform knocks on my door at 8.32 precisely, I will know you want me to go witnessing. It's 8.32 and 10 seconds. Thank you, Lord, you don't. And you turn the TV zapper up more loud. Thomas isn't like that. He's seriousness, serious. He's not a bottomless pit of doubt. So Thomas is not so much a doubter as a questioner. He's not so much a hider as a seeker. He's not so much an unbeliever as a longing to believe believer. And Jesus gave Thomas the evidence he needed. And Thomas comes to believe. He's a believing Thomas. Now look at the grace of the Lord Jesus in this passage. A week later when they were in the room and Thomas was with them, the Lord appeared again. An exact rerun. I wonder if, if Thomas ever wondered how Jesus knew what he'd said. But he does. Notice this time the complete absence of any note of fear in this part of the passage, but it was there in two Greek words in the first part of the passage. Notice how Thomas's doubting is a source now of an additional blessing to the other disciples. They're getting a repeat performance because Thomas wasn't there. Not only do they get the greatest declaration of faith in who Jesus is to date, where did he get it from? Who is it who says, my Lord and my God? It's Thomas. We can see a progression of faith in John's gospel that John's put there for us. 
Simon and the beloved disciple get to the empty tomb. They see the garments of death and they begin to believe. Mary, bewildered Mary, hears him call her name and begins to believe. The disciples in the upper room see the risen Jesus and they begin to believe. And Thomas witnesses that and is the one who comes out with my Lord and my God. And then, if I've told you what the saddest passage of this piece is, the best good news for us in the passage is this, what Jesus says to Thomas. And again, I'll give you the Atkins paraphrase. Bless you, Thomas, but even more blessed are those who have not seen what you've seen, and yet they believe. And that's you, and that's me. Blessed people, because we believe having not physically seen, we have faith in the risen Christ. Faith in the risen Christ is not groundless, not pointless, not without promise, and not without hope, but it is faith. And for all disciples, that will be enough. I urge it to be enough for you. Must close. There are many kinds of Thomases, but there are only two main types, and I want to introduce them to you, and I want to you to ask yourself, which Thomas am I like? There's hiders and there's seekers. Thomas was a seeker, but there are actually many hiders. I've met dozens of them down the years. People who are actually always there in church, morning and evening, when it doesn't matter so much, and never quite there when it really matters. People who ask questions ad infinitum, ad nauseum, but the answers that you try and strive to give them seem totally irrelevant to their coming to and deepening of faith. It's like water off a duck's back. People for whom care and love and endless prayer and ministry and time seemingly produce no spark of faith. It's like putting a wave in a bottle, like pouring time down a black hole. People wrapped in cling film, impervious of their Christian environment. I know where I'll hide from the risen Christ. I'll go put myself in the middle of that Christian community. They'll never look for me there. And their key word is, I will not believe. Jesus, who was divine compassion, did not chase the rich young ruler and say, uh, uh, sorry that was a bit hard for you, uh, let's try and make it easier. Jesus did not say to the disciples, go to the house and never leave it until everyone is a Christian. How far out of Jerusalem do you think they'd have got? Had Thomas not been present on the second Sunday... Would Jesus have appeared on the Sunday after and the Sunday after that to ensure that Thomas 
was there. There's a silly story of a person going round a national, national trust property and as they were shown round, the guide went on and there was a do not open thing on the side of a cupboard, which is, of course, red rags to Yorkshire people like me. So they pulled open the cupboard and inside there was a skeleton and round its neck it had a little medal and on the medal it said, Yorkshire hide and seek champion, 1910. <laughs> Come on, wake up, think about it. But hiders can become seekers. And if you're a hider this morning, I urge you to become a seeker. Have you ever played a game of hide and seek? How many? How many in their life ever have played a game of hide and seek? Good. Have you, have you ever found a hiding place so good that you thought to yourself as you got in it, nobody's going to find me here? And after some time, when they haven't found you, you suddenly get the revelation, stroll on, I'm right, nobody is going to find me here. <laughs> so what do you begin to do? You begin to shuffle, or when you hear the people who are looking for you and they come somewhere near you, you go, <coughs> and if that doesn't work, eventually when you get bored silly, you leap out from your hiding place and you say, I'm here! Because deep, deep, deep down inside, most of frail, fallen humanity actually want to be found. This Thomas was found. Seekers can still be found. It's time to be a seeker. And it's time to be found. Amen. So we pray, Lord, plant your